Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. We are doing today our uh, first baptism uh, celebration since we moved into this new campus. And in this first service, we're going to have a couple people at the end of the service that are getting baptized. There's some people that are on this video, and there's some people that aren't on this video uh, that decided they want to get baptized. The video doesn't get you baptized. Uh, It's your public profession of faith. And so I want to let you know, if you've never been baptized and God stirs in your heart today, Do you'd like to be baptized? We've got shorts. We've got t-shirts. You can keep the t-shirt. You can keep the shorts, just as a memory. Uh, But what you need to do is go out and just talk to somebody at the information booth. And what they want to know is, are you already a follower of Jesus Christ? Because he dealt with your sins at the cross. And so what happens in this water is not some magical thing. You're making a declaration. Our Savior was baptized. He commands us to be baptized. And if you haven't done that, we just want to give you an opportunity to be baptized today. I'm not going to try and manipulate you or push you, but if you're ready, uh, at the end of the, and when I'm praying and the sermon's over with, just go out to the information booth, and uh, we'd love to talk with you about maybe being baptized today during this service, or if you need a little time, you want to text your friends and get them to come to church, second service, we'll have you baptized. So we'd love to do that. Sound good? All right. I like that. Yeah. How do you do that? You're a Lions fan. I'm a Lions fan. How do you get that excited about anything? Anyway, Jesus, that's why, right? Transformation. Some of y'all are ready. You ready? Are you really ready? All right. Hold on. Before you answer, think about this. I don't know what you think, because I know there's lots of people come to our church. I know what our church says on our website. We believe in stuff, but I believe this is God's word. Now think about that. That means that when we open this up, the God who made you, created this world, sustains it, holds it all together is speaking to you. So let me ask again, are you ready? If that means he could change your life today. Some of you are like, no, 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 I'm a Christian. I I love, I'm not stealing anything most of the time. I'm mostly honest. Like, what if he wants to change your career today? You're like, well, I'm about to retire. Okay. He would never tell me to, he tells a prophet to marry a prostitute. Anything's possible today. Amen. He might change you. Let me pray and we'll open up the scriptures. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word this morning. And uh, God, I know that Satan hates what's happening here in this room, hates what's happening in the lives of many of the people in this room, and he's got a plan to steal, kill, and destroy. God, I pray that you would, you would block him from this time right now that we spend together, that your spirit would move through this room, tap people on the shoulders, speak into hearts. God, I don't care if they don't hear anything I say today, if you would speak to their hearts, please. But God, will you preach this message through me? Will you, like you stand up here next to me and, and just give me the words to say to people as we open up your scriptures. I believe that the pastors that we're going to, but whatever you want to do, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. We've been doing this series called Transformed. And in the series, we're asking the question, how does God change us? And what we've been doing is really walking through our DNA as a church. Because we, we say all the time, and it's been, we've popped up our website on the screen, and we'll put different slides up that say this information. You can find it all the time. We say the same thing. It's on the wall out in the lobby that we are passionate about seeing people connected to Jesus for life change. This passion motivates us to do three things, to encounter the living God, to equip one another to love and serve, and to engage our world for Jesus. And every week through this series, since the beginning of the new year, we've walked through each one of those things. And so week one, we talked about encountering God. And I'm just gonna read it to you again, uh, so that we're all on the same page, what an encounter with God is. It says, life change happens when we encounter the living God. A genuine encounter with God happens when we see him accurately and respond appropriately. This means every time we gather, 
every time. We pursue the presence of the one who formed us, pursued us, redeems us, and loves us unconditionally. And we saw in week one, we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that what we behold, we become. And we talked about, we want to be people that are beholding, not just thinking about ourselves and how can I be better. Church isn't like self-improvement lesson with some Bible verses. And we look at the glory of God, and as we bask on the glory of God and we seek his presence, he changes us. Sometimes it's a slow change, sometimes it's a radical change, but he changes us to be more and more who he intended for us to be. Amen? Week two, we talked about equipping. Equipping on our website, we say this, we are created for a purpose, and we're committed to equipping one another to fulfill that purpose. This means we learn together. This means we're disciples making disciples, encouraging one another to love and serve those around us. This means we celebrate the process. And we remember, and this is one, if you don't get anything else, get this, that we are all in need of a Savior every day. Pastor Dave preached a great message that week, and he talked about how we need to give up, we need to get small, we need to grow up, we need to move forward, and you were given an opportunity to get into small groups. Here's why. Because we believe that Jesus' model of relational ministry, it's not just you getting information downloaded in your head, or we can just give you website links every week, read that, but the way that it happens, the equipping happens in relationship with one another. And so we want everybody in our church to be in a small group. We want everybody not just to be like, so you have attendance in a small group. We want you to live life on life with one another because we can't do this on our own. Amen? And so then the last week we talked about engaging our world for Jesus. Do you remember last week I shared with you that 65% of people in North Carolina wouldn't even claim to be evangelical Christians? Now some of you, you were like, yeah, I don't know. I think that number's really, really low. And some of you told me, I don't know. All my, Christian, all my friends are Christians. I don't think that number's really high. And it probably depends on where you move, who you come into contact with. But if it's true, and if the Bible's true, there's no other name by which men shall be saved with the name of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That means 65% of people self-proclaimed are headed for a Christless eternity. And so we say... Every follower of Jesus has a mission and an opportunity to make an impact daily. This means we are not consumers but doers who pursue opportunities to engage others with the life-changing message of Jesus. This means we own our impact. And the love of Jesus compels us, not because it's an assignment from the church. The love of Jesus in our lives as we're transformed compels us to live engaged on mission together. It really ties it all together. Of, of who we are and why we say we do what we do, that we want to own our impact, that we'd be such transformed people that God would use us to then transform other people. And so if you understand these three things, you understand our dream, our vision as a church of who we want to be. We want to be a church where people come together and you're not content with some religious goods being exchanged on a Sunday morning. Some religious rituals happen and maybe, people, maybe we have a little communion service or we do some baptisms or we preach a message, we read some Bible verses and these rituals are gone through and, and some platitudes are given. Maybe you get a tweetable statement you can pop out there with a verse on it and everything so it's like double social media gold. It's good and it's got a Bible verse on it. It's awesome. That's not what we want. We want the presence of God to invade our place and then he starts to transform, sometimes radically transform us, sometimes a little bit more moving the ball down the field, and we realize that we can't do it on our own, that Christianity is a team sport, that we need one another, and that we dream about being a church like you read about in Acts chapter 2, where people were willing to get messy with one another, they'd actually confess their sins to one another, and that God showed up and did miraculous things in their midst. Like I think about when I think about this church, why my wife and I moved here to plant this church, we didn't just want another place for people to gather together and sing kumbaya and be friendly with one another, make some memories and take care of your kids for a little while. I remember seeing, being inspired by a church in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. Because I remember when I saw it, I thought, 
God's real. Like he's really changing people's lives. And we want to see that happen here. Genuine transformation where you don't just change your behaviors because some guy stood on a stage and told you you should. But that God transforms the desires in your heart from the inside out. And then we start living that out with one another and we become so transformed that the third thing becomes true, that God uses us to start transforming this world, that our worlds are so turned upside down that God uses us to turn the world upside down. That we're so transformed as a people that God uses us to start transforming other people, that we'd own our impact, that we'd make a difference in this community, that this church wouldn't be just a building that like people drive by and like, oh, they painted the building, they renovated it, there's a new name on it. But it'd be like a beacon of hope in our city that hurting people are drawn to, and then they get the hope of Jesus Christ, their life is turned upside down, and then they're radically changed into a change agent in our city. How does that happen? As we wrap up the series today, that's what we're going to talk about. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. I invite you to turn with me. We're going to focus on verse 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, so you know I'm not pulling it out of context. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. What's happening here, remember the story of Acts? It's written by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1 and 2, about the birth of our Savior. Acts 1 and 2, the birth of the church. The church is a movement, needs the Holy Spirit. It's not just a hobby that we do. It's not just a place we gather. The church is not the building. It's the people. That's you. And it's God's plan to be the hope of the world. It's God's plan to turn this place upside down. And that's what he's been doing through this book, where he takes what in Acts chapter 2 is about 120 men and women not supernatural people, but he supernaturally empowers them and then uses them by a few years later when we start reading this stuff, back in the middle of Acts, the end of Acts, there are literally tens of thousands of followers of Jesus Christ. And now today you're here because of those 120 people. Millions have been impacted. So what was it with them? That's what we're going to see in our passage. And what's happened right before Acts chapter 17 is Acts 16 where Paul has gone and he started a church in Philippi. The way the church was started is people's lives were changed. If you read about that congregation, it's pretty dramatically contrasted, not necessarily in their race or their demographic, but in the stories that the people have. They have one thing in common, Jesus Christ is their savior, but you've got a a woman who was demon-possessed, had a demon cast out of her. You've got another wealthy woman who probably is funding a bunch of the church, her name's Lydia, and and then you've got this guy, he was a police officer, and he's he's holding Paul and, and his buddy in jail one night. They start singing. There's an earthquake. The doors fly open. He's ready to kill himself. And then he says, what must I do to be saved? And his life is radically transformed. And that's how you start a church with people whose lives have been changed. And he starts this church in Philippi, but then he has to leave. So he goes to the next place, Thessalonica. If you're familiar with their Bibles, you know there's two letters in the, in the New Testament written to this church, First and Second Thessalonians. Here's how that church started. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through, oh, I hate these names, Amphipolis and Apollonia, I practiced them, I promise, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. There wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, there's a synagogue here, so every community is not the same. And Paul went in, as was his custom, remember Paul's passion, Romans chapter 9, says he'd give up, we talked about weeping over our city last week, he says in Romans chapter 9, I'd give up my own salvation if my people would be saved. And so he goes to the synagogue. He knows they don't believe in Jesus. He went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks, and not a few, that means a bunch, and not a few of the leading women, But the Jews were jealous 
And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was the host where they were staying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money for, as security from Jason, probably saying these guys won't come back, and the rest, they let them go. Did you see what these guys, what this rabble, this, this riot, these jealous Jews said about these men that were starting these churches? So they turned the world upside down. That's what other people were saying about Christians. They turned the world upside down. Have you ever thought about what other people would say about your life? Like, I remember one time, uh, our family, we were in Charleston, South Carolina. We were walking through this historic district, and there was this really old cemetery. And so we took the kids, and we started walking through, and I told them, I said, see if you can find who's the oldest person buried here. Who's the person born the first? And we started going through, we're reading these tombstones. As you read tombstones, you learn stuff about people's lives. Because sometimes people, other people, the person that's in the grave didn't write this, okay? Other people write on their tombstone what they remember about that person. I was looking online this week at a few different tombstones. And it's interesting to me the types of things that people put on these things. I don't know if you've, maybe it's morbid to like, well, I don't know, but here we go. We're going to do it. All right, I'm going to show you some of these. Here's one. Somebody put a recipe for Kay's fudge. I don't know if Kay like never shared the recipe and her family's like, gotcha. Or if Kay like handed this thing out everywhere. But for some reason, when they want to remember Kay's life, they put this recipe on the tombstone. Another one. Remember, the person in the grave didn't write this. And so that makes me think, is it, is it somebody who felt guilty? Is it passive aggressiveness within the family? Like, I don't know why this one was on here. Some of you have heard of Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield was a self-deprecating comedian. His tagline was, I get no respect. There goes the neighborhood, somebody wrote on his. He's a guy who at one time said, he said, when I was born, I was so ugly that the doctor slapped my mama. That's where that comes from, if you were wondering where that came from. Some of them are good, some of them are funny, and some of them are serious. Probably my, my favorite, oh, this one I can relate to. I don't have one bathroom, but. <laughs> my favorite one, though, was Martin Luther King Jr. And in the last weekend, we talked about MLK, but free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. So true, not just because he spoke it in a speech. What would people say about your life? You ever wonder, does my life matter? Does my existence make any difference? And you think about what the Bible says about our lives. In James chapter four, it says that we're just a vapor. Like our life is so short. Most of us here in two generations, nobody even in your family will remember you existed. So does it even matter that we're here? I did a little looking online this week, and, and it depends on which source you go to, but it says that the American life, on average, is 78 to 80 years. Let's say it's 80 years, okay? I wrote down a little math. That means you have approximately, depends on leap years and all that kind of stuff, you've got approximately 29,000 days in 80 years, 29,200, so we're not going to go exact dates. But that means this, if you've got 80 years to live and you're 35 years old, you've got 16,000 days left, about 16,000 days left. If you're 45 years old, this continues to get depressing, just so you know. (laughs) 
12,000 days left. If you're 60 years old, you've got about 7,000 days left. If you're 79, you better make today count. Like, we don't know how long we have, but let's, if you're average, if you're average and live to 80, where are you at in the spectrum? Everybody who's 40 is like, I'm right at the, I better do something now. Listen, every one of us has days that, it depends on how we invest them, how we spend them. And when you look at the book of Acts, what ended up happening was God took these ordinary people. He did this, these are ordinary folks. He's saying, these men, these, it's people like this, like Peter that we've seen in this book, like Paul. The book's not about these guys. God's highlighting what he's doing. And here's these people, he's doing it through. They're very different people. He takes ordinary people, he's doing extraordinary things, but how does he do it? And what we see in our passage of scripture today is there's at least three things that are true about these people. They're willing to step out, they're willing to speak out, and they're willing to live out. That's our outline. They're willing to step out into God's calling for their life. Are you willing to step out into God's calling for your life? And so here's the Apostle Paul. We find him in Thessalonica here. This church, he's just come from Philippi. God's continuing to use him to plant these churches, to start these different places. But why is it? What is it about him? And God had a calling on Paul's life before Paul was ever even a follower of Jesus. God's got a calling on every Christian's life. You've got to be willing to step out into that calling. And what we see with Paul is there's some characteristics in his life throughout his ministry, not just in this passage, although you see in this passage, but all through the book of Acts where you see these three characteristics of about him, one of them was this, he's willing to do whatever God calls him to do. He's willing, are you willing to do whatever God calls you to do? Whatever it is, even if it's different than your dream, different than your plan, whatever God, come to God with like a blank check, say whatever you want to do. The apostle Paul was. We read about his calling back in Acts chapter 9. But here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't hear this. We get to, wouldn't it be nice sometimes if we could read a book about our own life and see what God has to say about it? But, but look at how it says that. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, another guy's getting told about Paul's life, and it says that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, to be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea. That sounds like a familiar calling. But then he says some specifics about Paul's life. For I will show him, not tell him, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so God's calling for Paul's life is suffering. Would you be willing to step out into that calling? The way that I'm going to spread the gospel most effectively through your life is by having you suffer and the gospel come through your life. And then what you see, if you want to read about all Paul's suffering, you want like the cliff notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 goes through beaten flogged shipwrecked stoned but if you read through the book of acts you see it and what you see is he's continually got this mentality whatever whatever you want me to do if you go back to acts chapter 13 acts chapter 14 there's a, he goes to this one place lystra lystra depends on how you want to pronounce it preaches the gospel there they stone him they think to death they think he's dead they grab him by the ankle drag his body out of the city leave him there christians gather around he's not dead what would you do in that moment I think if it were me, I'd be like, whew, that was a good day's work. Brush, I've done more than most people ever do for you. I think I'm going to go to the Mediterranean Ocean and just watch the waves crash in for a little while. The next day, Paul goes to Derby, preaches the gospel. And he keeps going. What do you see? You see this mentality. See, I, I, told, you, I told you about Philippi and how God changed people's lives in Philippi right before this passage of Scripture. He's in Philippi. They beat him. They throw him in prison. Do you know why? Not because he's preaching Jesus. 
It's because that God cast a demon out of a demon-possessed girl, used Paul to do it, and now these people aren't going to make money. So Paul could be sulking and upset, sitting in prison, but instead he's singing these hymns, praising God. God opens the doors. He doesn't go walking out. Instead he realizes, I'm going to own my impact. There's a guy right in front of me who needs the gospel. He's about to take his own life. I'm telling him about Jesus. God changes his life. But in God's time, he goes to the next place. He comes here to where we're at in this passage of Scripture. People aren't super pumped about it. Some people are trusting Christ. Then these other people, they want to kill him. That's why they say, the ironic thing about this statement, these men who turn their world upside down, is it's not Paul saying it. Hey, we're going around to turn the world upside down. No, it's the people that are upset about the gospel because they see people's lives being turned upside down. And they don't want their life turned upside down. And then Paul goes on, and he keeps going. Let me read you this passage from Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, we see where this mentality comes from. He says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. And so the Spirit's guiding his life. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there. So he doesn't know. He doesn't have the script. He's not just following this playbook. He says, except the Holy Spirit. And probably just put it on his heart testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Remember the calling, Acts chapter 9? I'm going to show, through his experiences, I'm going to show him he must suffer for my name. And he keeps doing it. Why? Verse 24 shows us. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. It's just a vapor. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God to be his witness, to engage our world for Jesus. But how how does he have this whatever it takes mentality? Because he says, I don't consider, my life isn't even my life. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 63. My lips are gonna praise you because your love, it's better than my life. I I want you. So I'll do whatever, whatever you want me to do. What about you? You do whatever God calls you to do? Like what if he does tell you to change your career today? What if he calls you, I don't know, the mission field? What if he says today it's time to stop playing games with your faith and just being a religious nice person in our community who's got good morals and I want you to radically follow me and he tells you what that looks like step by step. Would you do it? See, the reality is I think many of us, we like the idea of this, but it's scary to us to actually surrender. Many of us, we know it needs to happen at some point, but maybe not today. It's kind of like my, my daughter, Gracie, our youngest daughter. She's seven years old. She lost both of her front teeth uh, this Christmas, which lent itself to a whole bunch of people at church singing a certain song to her. You probably all know what it is. And, uh, but there was this, she lost the first tooth right away. The second tooth, she didn't want it to go out. In fact, so much so that her adult tooth started growing in behind it. And we actually talked about it one day. We're sitting in the kitchen. She said, the adult tooth will push the baby tooth out at some point. But it didn't. The adult tooth kept coming in. The baby tooth wouldn't come out. We had all kinds of talks about it. One time I got pliers out, and I said, listen, if you just let me touch the tooth with these pliers, we can get it out. She didn't like that. So uh, probably counseling, trauma. I'm not telling you these aren't parenting lessons. I'm just telling you what happened, okay? In our house, sometimes it's hard to determine what's trauma, what's drama. It's just all kind of happening there. I told her we could tie a string around it, put it on a doorknob. And then eventually what would happen is every night when I'd come home, I'd just say, Gracie, can I see your tooth? And she'd smile and I'd see two teeth like stuck together on the thing. And I started to say to her, can I see it with my fingers? And then you know what? She, every time she'd do the same thing. She'd say, no. And then our, our downstairs of our house is shaped like a circle. So she'd go, no. And she'd like start running around the circle. I didn't move. 
Like, I'm just standing there. I'm like, can I see it with my fingers? No! It's like, now, I, I'm not, I've never done anything to her to intentionally harm her. She knows I want what's best for her. I joked with her at times. I said, on your wedding day, I'm going to pull that tooth out. Every time, though, she'd say no, and she'd run in a circle. And I got thinking about it. That's a lot like us. It's not that we don't trust our Heavenly Father. It's not that we don't believe the long-term benefit, things we hold on to. But we, we hold on to stuff. And sometimes it's our dream for our life, and it's not the same dream that God has for our life. And sometimes it's secret sin. I don't want anybody to know about it, but we're hanging on to that sin. Sometimes it's unforgiveness. Some relationship needs to be reconciled. We hang on to this stuff. And I started thinking about it. I was like, it's a bunch of garbage. So I brought some garbage here for you today. You can come up after the service. You want to see what's in here. Uh, But I thought, we got this stuff. And it's like we carry it around in our lives. And it's not that big of a deal. Most of the time. Then every once in a while, there's a message that comes up. Maybe you go to a small group. And you'll even put it out there. Like you'll say to my small group, I really need to. Would you pray that I would? I need, to, I need to be bold for, pray that I have a burden. I'd rather you prayed about my burden than me actually having a burden. And so I don't really do anything about it. We talk about it once or twice, and it kind of goes, I need to forgive that person. Yeah, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about the perfect timing. We put it out there, then we put it back. Then every once in a while, it's like God says, let me see it with my fingers. And we're like, no! <laughs> Leave me alone. But here's the truth, simple truth. You can't have open-handed surrender to God if you still got stuff in your hands. So you got, you got, you got to let it go. You got to here, whatever, whatever you want, God mentality. It's a blank check. Whatever you want, I'm willing to do whatever you want. Cancer. Deal with my sin. I'll step into whatever you want. We got to be willing to step out into our calling. You want to step out into whatever God's calling is on your life? We know his calling is that we're supposed to be his witnesses. We saw the first part of Paul's calling. The second part, he shows us as we're guided by his spirit and we walk through life. But not only did Paul have a whatever you want me to do mentality, he was willing to go wherever God called him to go. And so we see it here. He's in, he was in Philippi in, verse six, in chapter 16. If you go back to the beginning, when, you know what happens at the start of his testimony? is He's temporarily blind. Then God leads him to Damascus. Then after that, we start reading through the Bible, read the book of Galatians 2. He goes three years out in the desert of Arabia to be prepared for ministry. Then he goes to Antioch, Jerusalem. He goes to all these different places before he ever goes on a mission trip. And if you want to see all the places that Paul goes, if you've got an old school Bible, like a leather Bible or a paperback Bible, the back of your Bible, you read about his first, his second, his third missionary journey, you're like, man, this dude was everywhere. And you see, if you start reading the stories, there's times when he wanted to go to certain places like Asia, and God said no. And then God would guide him, sometimes through a dream, sometimes through circumstances to where he wanted him to go, and he takes him to Macedonia, places like Syria and Turkey. There's people, if you read his New Testament letters, you're like, I want to come to you, but there's reasons why he's not coming. He wants to come back to the Thessalonians. Read First Second Thessalonians. There's a reason he's not coming. They're going to kill him there. Pretty practical reason. God's leading but what you see is he's got this wherever, wherever you want me to go mentality. In fact, it's interesting. If you take these two things, you put them together, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, it's not just Paul's life. If you look at all the characters in the Bible that God uses in significant ways, they've got this mentality. 
Isaiah is probably the most famous after he has where he sees, where he beholds God, he sees him accurately, responds appropriately. You know what he says in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8? Here I am. Send me wherever you want me to go. How about Abraham? Some of you are coming to the end of your career and you got your plan for your retirement or you're going to sell your business or you're going to go do this other job. Abraham, very successful, living in this place. God says, I'm going to take you to another place and you don't even know where it is. I just want you to start going. And he goes. I'm going to take the most important thing in your life, Genesis chapter 22, your son Isaac. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Open-handed, talk about open-handed. What's Abraham's mentality? Here I am. It's all yours. David, everybody's scared of the Philistines and the giant. Here I am, God. Look at the smack he talks. It's not about how awesome he is when he steps out to fight the giant. It's about in the name of the Lord. You're defying the Lord. Here I am, God. Samuel literally says when God starts calling, here I am. How about Mary? We we just went through Christmas in December. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then to travel a hundred miles while pregnant to go to Bethlehem, wherever, whatever, wherever. And do you know what else is the mentality of these folks? Whenever. Whenever you tell me to do it. You see it in Paul's life here. It's not, he doesn't want to leave Thessalonica as fast as he does. But God's got a plan for him. He can take care of this church without him. And you think about Mary. If you, were, if you were Mary and God came to you and said, hey, you're a virgin, um, you're going to be pregnant, but it's cool, it's my baby. If, you're mar- if I'm married, you know what I'd say? Hey, God, can we wait a couple months? Trust me, it's going to be easier on everybody. Or Noah, I want you to build a boat, Noah. Uh, it's never even rained. How about you have it rain a couple times first? See, here's the thing about God's timing. Rarely is it our timing. It's always perfect timing. If you're going to step out into God's calling for your life, the kind of people that turn the world upside down, you've got to be willing to do whatever, whenever, wherever God calls you. That's a surrendered mentality. Do you have that? What about you? Are, are you ready for that? I love the quote D.L. Moody said one time. He said, the world is yet to see what God can do through a man who's fully committed to him. And then he said, may I be that man. What about you? Would you be that man? Would you be that woman? We've got to be willing to step out into God's calling for our life. Not only do we need to step out, we've got to be willing to speak out boldly for Jesus. We need to be willing to speak out boldly for Jesus. Here you've got these men, and you see there's six verbs that describe Paul's preaching here in this passage of Scripture, between verses 3 and 4. Four of them describe what he says. Two of them describes what people do. And so in verse 3, you see he's reasoning. That means he's dialogue. He's talking to them about their questions. He's not just telling them what to think. He's willing to hear their objections. And and then he's explaining from the scriptures, like like Jesus did with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. It's the same word. He's opening up the scriptures. He's showing how from the whole Old Testament, Jesus is being preached. And then it says that, that not only is he explaining and reasoning, he's proving that it was necessary. Why was it necessary for Christ to die? Well, they're familiar with sacrifices. They know that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But that the bulls and goats, that never, that never dealt with sin. It was like a, a temporary covering. Somebody's, somebody's got to pay for this, and it's going to be either you or Jesus, and he's showing them how Jesus paid, and he's explaining from the Scriptures, he's proving to them. And then he says he's proclaiming these things to be true. And it says that some of them were persuaded and joined. And so he got persuaded and joined. And all of this, you see the boldness of Paul preaching here in Acts chapter 17. But you know what? That's a theme all through Acts. If you think about how this whole thing started, there were some of Jesus' followers when he's killed, they're hiding in a room. They're terrified. 
And, and then in Acts chapter 1, we looked at last week, the Holy Spirit hasn't come. They've got to be thinking to themselves, I can't be your witness. He says, you wait here. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, they're transformed from being incapable people to being bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. And so Peter, who's a guy who, who was terrified before a servant, what is she going to do? A servant girl. So I never knew the man. Then stands before thousands of people and says, you killed God. And they say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. And that's how the church gets started, is with boldness. But then you keep reading. Acts chapter 4, he says something that I bet if you were a politician, you'd probably never say this in Congress, or the Senate. He says something that if you're a teacher, I mean, you probably don't say it to your, your principal, the fellow teachers, police officer around the station. He says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's no other name by which men will be saved. That takes boldness, especially in a time like ours. And you know what happens after that? <clears throat> then the guys that are the Supreme Court of the day, Sanhedrin, they say, you don't preach in that name anymore. And they threaten him. And do you know what happens after that? You're not just naturally bold, because you were bold once. He goes to his people. Peter does. John. Say, will you pray that we're bold? It's like Paul says, even in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells the Ephesians, pray that I'm bold that when I open my mouth, I'd say the things that I'm supposed to say, not just what people want to hear, but what they need to hear. And so then they keep preaching in the name. And if you read the end of Acts chapter 4, it's amazing. You've got to read Acts chapter 4. They pray, and the place is shaken, and then they go out boldly proclaiming. You know what happens in Acts chapter 5? The Sanhedrin keeps their word. They arrest them. They flog them. Have you seen the Passion of the Christ? And then these guys go out rejoicing that they were worthy to be suffering for the name. That's boldness. And then you keep reading through, and it's boldness, 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 but boldness doesn't just come naturally. You've got to be dependent. Let me, let me just read to you some verses. Some of you like to study your Bible on your own. Write these down. Acts chapter 9, verse 28. So he went in and out among, the, among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. Acts chapter 19, verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. Acts chapter 26, verse 26, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak bold to the king about a different king. His name is Jesus. I speak boldly. The last verse in the whole book. Proclaim to the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In fact, Paul writes a letter to these Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about his boldness. You want to know where boldness comes from? Listen to these verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. I didn't want to waste my life. I wanted it to matter. I wanted my existence to make a difference. And so, what did I do? Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, we talked about that, Acts 16. As you know, here's Acts 17, we had boldness in our, in our God. Get that. Where does boldness come from? It comes from confidence. Confidence not in the results, but in the God you proclaim. He said, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in each of these cities. I don't know if anybody's going to trust Jesus. I don't know what God's going to I know that suffering and imprisonment awaits me, but I don't know the result. He's not confident. In the, he's not confident. If I proclaim to you that you killed Jesus, that you're going to accept Jesus, and Jesus is going to turn your world upside down. The only thing he knows is, I'm going to suffer for saying this stuff. But my boldness, it comes from God. So we're, our boldness, if you want to, here's a little statement, if you want to keep a little catchy statement for you. 
So your boldness for God is directly related to your confidence in God. And just think about it. You see this to be true in lots of... People don't talk smack about their team if they're Lions fans. Richard, all right? But if you like Duke basketball, trust me, I've talked to some of y'all. Your team's going to destroy. They're amazing. You got no problem talking. Why? Because you're confident. Because they're awesome. It's true. No cheering. How interesting. NC State crowd. Got it. Your confidence directly relates to your boldness and your burden. Are you, you talk about the things you care about. We talked about last week that if 65% of people in our state don't know Jesus and they don't even know what's coming, that their problem has to become our burden. And we shared with you uh, last week an opportunity for you to go out and <clears throat> share these care packs, try and share the gospel. I got an email from one woman in our church that I want to share with you uh, today. She told me that I could share it. She wrote me on Friday and said that the message convicted her. She recognizes that she passes a homeless woman every week at Harris Teeter, and hundreds of people will just walk by this lady, and nobody ever does anything. And so she said, last week, I was not able to see her during the day, as I have no idea where she goes. So I left food and some warm items, and I hoped that she'd receive them. Remember how cold it was at the beginning of the week? Well, the burden's gotten heavier, she said. As I've been trying to know how to handle my feelings of reaching out to her and help in some way, our God is so good, and his timing is perfect. Thank you for reemphasizing that. Appreciate that. See how I did that? Like that? All right. <clears throat> she did it. In her spirit. Today, as I entered Harris Teeter, she had her cart of plastic bags, which surrounds herself with, and two umbrellas over her, and she was asking Starbucks for ice. I decided to approach her with great peace. I confirmed she was the woman who was on my heart. We spoke for some time. Uh, she's not willing to go to a shelter. She goes into some reasons of some things that happened at her apartment with the police. And, and said, she says, she's presented so differently than I expected. It gave me a chance to talk about the assistance of churches as she continues to live outside. And, and then God laid it on her heart, her name's Monica, for her and her husband to put this woman in a hotel for a couple nights. And then, but then I want you to, don't miss this. She says, I've begun weeping for my first person in RDU. And I wait to see what God has planned. Do you know what that is? That's the stirring of revival in a person's heart. Get stirring in your heart. See, when what you're confident in and what you're burdened for come together, then you boldly, you boldly proclaim that. Now, can I tell you something? I realize something. Some of you might not think pastors get this. I know that vision leaks. I know that we talk about this stuff at church, and you, you might leave pumped, but I know what happened last week. You had to work late one night, so you didn't get to talk to anybody. And there was a soccer game, and there were errands to run, and you got sick, like, I'm losing my voice right now, we'll see what happens. And you just, you, you come back here, and you're like, yeah, that's right, I wanted to do that. I forgot about doing that. I'm going to do it next week, I'm going to do it. And you know what will happen? You'll have more soccer games. There's going to be more errands. There's going to be other stuff. Do you, that's one of the reasons why when we talk about our vision as a church, our vision is not to get you to invite your friends to come to church. We believe that God's got you living and working and having hobbies and doing the stuff you do where you're at for a reason. You're not a perfect Christian, but you're the perfect Christian to reach the people you're coming into contact with. And so when you stay late at work and a coworker shares their burden with you, do you know what it is to be bold? It's not to say, hey, have you ever been to church? It's to say, let me tell you about a burden that happened in my life and what God did. Do you have a relationship with God that happens through Jesus? Do you know him? 
That's bold. <clears throat> it's when you have that social obligation you didn't want to go to. Your spouse signed you up. You're out with this couple. They're talking. And you, and you say, hey, do you have a relationship with God? It happens through Jesus. Can I tell you about mine? Would you like one? That's what Paul's doing here when he's reasoning. That requires listening, just so you know. He's answering their questions. He's explaining, and he's proclaiming. He's not afraid to boldly say. And then it says here he's proving to them, which takes us to our third point. You must live out your faith. You must live out your faith. See, it says here in verse Verse 3, explaining and proving. You've got to ask yourself, how is he proving? Well, it says here that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, remember, he's at the synagogue. I don't imagine he just take the scrolls that are rolled out there on the table. And he starts, like, Psalm 22? Talks about the cross. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. Say, listen, this is your book. Isaiah 53? Let me read you Isaiah 53, verse 5. I'll put it up on the screen. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cr- See, the Jews didn't believe that the Messiah would die, that he would suffer. Isaiah, that's their book. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. How did he prove it? He proved it through the Bible. You need to know your Bible well enough to point people to Jesus through the Bible. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what they believe. That's just a conversation. But you say, if this book really, let's just say that it is God's word, like we talked about, then it matters what it says. It doesn't really matter what I think, what I believe, how I'm persuaded, what my opinion is. Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says there's no other name. The Bible says there's only one way that he was pierced. It's by his wounds that you can be healed. And so he's proving from the scriptures. But you know how else he's proving? It says after this, they were persuaded, many joined, and that's what ticked the Jews off. He was proving through changed lives. That's the greatest proof of the reality of God. It's a changed life. If you want to turn the world upside down, you've got to be willing to live upside down. But can I tell you something? And we see this every time with Paul. If you're going to live on mission for Jesus, you will face opposition from your enemy. I was thinking this week, I was thinking about Peter. You go through the book of Acts, and it's Peter and Paul mostly that you read about. And I thought, I wonder when Luke, who writes the book of Acts, when he wrote Luke 22, what it was like for Peter to go back and read that. Because in Luke chapter 22, it's Jesus having a conversation with Peter before Peter ever blew it. Before he denied knowing Jesus. Do you know what he said? He said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. But I've prayed for you. And when you turn back. See, some of you have blown it. And you don't think God's got a plan for you anymore? He's not going to use you? He had a plan for Peter even after he blew it. When you turn back, strengthen your brother. Boldly proclaim me to them. I wonder if my name ever comes up between Satan and Jesus. Because he said Satan has asked to sit. Why would he ask to sift him? Because he knows Peter poses a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Because God used these men. It's not just Paul and Silas. It's all these Christian people that started with 120 men and women. They're turning the world upside down. Why? Because God's turned their lives upside down and they're boldly proclaiming it and they're stepping out into God's calling for their life. What about you? 
Does your name ever come up in conversation? Are you any threat? Because let me tell you something. You can probably accomplish all your career goals, do all, have your retirement, buy a boat, like whatever's your plan for this would be a successful life. And you know what? None of it will matter. And Satan doesn't care either. You, you might not be furthering his kingdom. You're moral. You're a nice person, but you're no threat to the kingdom of darkness. But if you are, there will be opposition. Are you, we asked at the beginning, are you ready? Are you ready to do whatever, whenever, wherever, to boldly speak out for Jesus and to live out? See, you want this world, if we talk about Matthew chapter 5 as our vision, that we want to be a city on a hill. Have you read Matthew 5? Do you know the context for Matthew 5? That's verses 14 through 16, that we'd be salt and light, that people would see our good deeds, they'd glorify our Father in heaven. Do you know what comes before that? Verses 1 through 13, go read them. It says, blessed in the English translation. It's makarios, Greek word makarios. It means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those that are persecuted. Happy are those who hunger and thirst. For, does that sound like this world? That's, that's different than this world, by the way. But do you know what upside down really is? It's what happened at the fall. This world got turned upside down when sin entered the world. So that we now live in a place where people celebrate murdering babies. We now live in a place where you flaunt your sexual sin before society and it's everyone else's problem. We live in a place where you can't say any truth or somebody's gonna be hurt and now you're guilty. That's upside down, just so you know. What the Christians were really doing, and I, there's great irony in the statement, these men are turning the world upside down. They're turning it right side up because they're living upside down lives according to this world and then people look and you know what they see? They see Jesus who turns lives upside down. And some people, they were persuaded, they joined, they wanted that. Some people, I don't want anything to do with that opposition. What about you? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The worship team's gonna come. God's spoken to some of your hearts. Some of you need to do business with him right now. Some people are gonna come and they're gonna get baptized. If you're getting baptized, you can go get your clothes on right now. Some of you, you might need to trust Jesus Christ as your savior. I don't want you to miss this moment. Some of you need to be baptized today and you weren't planning on being baptized. You can go out to our information table. It's out in the lobby. Some of you here, you know, you're, you see me holding that garbage bag and, and there's something that God put in your mind that that's the thing that you're holding on to. And you need to hand that over to him today. You need to, like, come into the, the foot of the cross. And if you want to come up here to the front and pray, you're welcome to come up here and pray. No one will mess with you. If you want to pray with somebody, we're going to have our elders, our deacons, our prayer team go off to the sides of the room towards the back and, and you'll be able to find them back there. They'll be just standing back there waiting for you if you want to pray with somebody. But if you need to do business with the Lord right now, then, However the Lord leads you to do that, we want you to do that. We want you to have the freedom. So we're going to sing a song together. But I don't want you to get so consumed with being on key or what the worship team's doing that you miss what God wants to do in your heart. And so people are going to stand. If you want to remain seated, you do that. If you want to come down here to the front, you do that. If you want to talk with somebody, we'll have people that are off to the sides that will do that. But let's just go in a spirit of prayer before him right now as we sing this song. Father, I, I come before you and I pray. If there's somebody here who needs to trust your son Jesus as Savior, and they don't know how to do that, that you would just, just have them pray to you right now, and, and God will guide you. He'll tell you what to say. You've got to confess your sin to him. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and ask him to be your Savior. If you want to do that right now, then just in your own words, say to acknowledge your sin before him in your heart. You can pray silently, or you can pray out loud. I, pr I promise you, if you pray out loud, people around you will be rejoicing. And some of you right now, you need to confess sin. We need to turn from sin. Some of you need to Say, God, what do you want to do with my life? I've got how many days left? How many days do you have left? 7,000? 10,000? I don't know. But 
what does God want to do with them? Does it matter? Are you willing? You want to step out into God's calling for your life? You want to speak out boldly for Jesus? You want to live out a transformed life? Live out your faith? You continue to talk to him. And those of you who'd like to, you can stand, and we're going to sing this song together as the worship team leads us.